Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 49 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Lime Made Me Write, an interview with Jennifer Butaccio. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guest is Jennifer Butaccio. Jennifer Butaccio is from Chicago, Illinois. She is also the creative force behind the Lyme Disease Challenge Instagram. Ms. Botaccio's own Lyme disease journey began after she had surgery to remove an ovarian cyst. She thought she was experiencing pelvic pain and even made DVDs about pelvic pain and how to manage it. But she realized in 2009, as her symptoms started to progress, that something more was wrong. She started to feel dizzy all the time, and soon her body crashed. She had to take multiple medical leaves from her job as an occupational therapist, but her position was eventually terminated because she was so sick. Ms. Botaccio was bedbound for almost two years. She couldn't even sit up for more than five minutes. After getting her Lyme disease diagnosis, she started on a regimen of herbs to strengthen her immune system. Since she was confined to her bed, Ms. Patacio started writing something she had always wanted to do. Eventually, she became a frequent blogger for Dr. Bill Rawls. Hey, Jenny Patacio, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Jenny, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your background? So, for example, can you share with us where you live? Yeah, I'm in Chicago, Illinois, you didn't know. <laughs> I'm in Chicago. I grew up in Minnesota in a small town along the Mississippi River, actually. It's very beautiful. It's called Winona. It's funny because I, I never saw a tick in Minnesota. <laughs> I, saw, I, saw my, I actually saw my first tick last year in the city of Chicago on my dog. But yeah, I grew up in Minnesota, right in uh, another tick haven of its own, you know. I think it's kind of comical that the, the place that I actually see the tick is when I live in a major city. So what was your childhood like? <laughs> if you asked my mom, she would say that I was always running around, always on the go, never home. And that, that's definitely true. You know, I was, a, I was a gymnast. I ran track. I did diving. But my primary sport was gymnastics. And that, you know, went year round in some capacity for me. So I always had practice sometimes long practices, you know, three, four hours. And I, you know, come home, get ready and leave and go somewhere else. So I really truly was always on the go, never in one place too long and just kept going. <laughs> so Jenny, were, were ticks or tick diseases a part of your childhood experience? Was it something that you talked about? Was it something that you were aware of? I recall like you could this is, so this would have been like in the in the 80s and I recall like picking up maybe like brochures either at the doctor's office or even at the library and they were uh, they would you know tell you like the deer tick or the you know a uh, dog tick or whatever and they would have like pictures and it would have like a little measurement of like how of, like the size of the ticks and I remember we had an awareness of Lyme disease but it wasn't something that we were overly concerned about. We weren't doing tick checks. No one was doing tick, tick checks. Um, we were actually much more concerned about mosquitoes. I mean, encephalitis had uh, surfaced somewhere in my childhood. And so, you know, people were really more concerned about mosquitoes and much less concerned about ticks. And, you know, this is the day that, like, perpetuates all the myths on how to remove it so you know we would we were told like hey burn burn it and it'll back out or uh near vaseline on it and it'll obstruct its ability to breathe <laughs> so 
that was as, about as much as I knew about ticks. I hadn't seen one. I hadn't encountered one. I really don't know anyone who had. And just, you know, just, I just knew about Lyme disease, but I didn't really know much past the term. So Jenny, where did you go to college? I went to Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. And what was your major? I majored in occupational therapy. Woohoo! Yeah, and so I was an OT for about 10 years. And uh, did you enjoy your experience as an occupational therapist? Some aspects of it. <laughs> I always say I never met a patient I didn't like. I always understood that if a patient was seeing me, that they weren't seeing me at the best time in their life. And so I didn't need to take anything personally. You know, some people, when they're sick, they're tired, they don't feel good, they're a little bit irritable, or they might even yell, or they're uncomfortable, or they're in pain, or they're crying, sobbing, you name it. There's a, it's a whole spectrum of emotions. And I just really quickly learned that's not about me. It's not about the job I'm doing. It's about the fact that I'm seeing these individuals at sometimes catastrophic times in their lives. And so I, I, I did like the patients. I understood something that I, I feel like is very essential to avoiding burnout in situations like that. And I, I did like trauma first. Anytime you do like trauma therapy, like anytime, any thing after that is easier. And so, I mean, the severity of the cases that I would see is just like pretty insane. I mean, it was just some very, very difficult patients. And then I, when I moved to Chicago, I did home health. And that was hard in a different way, because you had to know everything. You had to be on your game because there's no code team to call. The patient becomes unresponsive. There's no backup there. You're there. So you need to know when something's off and kind of how to detect it. So they both were like, they're kind of on like different ends of the spectrum in terms of like scheduling and, and the amount of people that are around you, but they're both, they're both challenging in a different way. And I like that. I like a challenge. I don't like, the paperwork. I don't like the hours of, you know, documenting notes and all that kind of stuff that gets a little bit old. So <laughs> I would say for the majority of it, I liked it. The parts I didn't like were the administrative sorts of things. So Jenny, we always ask our guests about their relationship status because tick diseases are family diseases. Can you share with us what your relationship status is? I am married coming up on 13 years in November. So, Jenny, I understand from some of our conversations earlier today that you had a really busy life prior to your tick disease as it related to athletic endeavors. I did Muay Thai for like six years in my 20s. Uh, so that's like kickboxing, but it's not like, I don't know, not like Thai bow, <laughs> like you're familiar with. It's actually like in the ring, sparring. Yeah, I did that for six years. I My... <laughs> Kind of a funny story, a slight segue, but when I went to college, my dad said, you need to learn how to defend yourself. <laughs> and he was like, we're getting you in, into kickboxing classes. And I was like, okay, well, I liked it and I stuck with it. So um, I did it for yeah, quite a long time. And I understand you're also a Pilates instructor um, as well as a fitness DVD purveyor. 
I taught around different, like I'm still an OT during all of these things. So I, you know, like after I would be working as an OT, I would teach some private classes or like on weekends, I would teach group classes or, you know, just whatever someone asked me to do. Before I ever had a Lyme diagnosis, I had a surgery to remove an ovarian cyst and immediately, and like when I say immediately, I mean, no time passed in between the surgery and me suddenly having problems. But I developed uh, interstitial cystitis, which is like a chronic inflammatory condition of the bladder. And it's not well understood. The treatments are not great. And it was kind of my first look at the chronic illness world or limitations that, you know, could be put when you started to have to strip away things in your life. That was 2005. And the one thing I didn't like, which still applies today is, you know, people are told all these things that they can't do. Don't do this. Don't do that. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. And I have this OT background where you're trained in modifying everything to help an individual have a better quality of life and rehabilitate. And so I was like, you just can't go around telling people all these things they can't do. You have to tell them what they can do. And so I started creating a series of DVDs that at that time was geared towards pelvic pain conditions. And I made my first one like a decade ago. And I had, it was self-published, so it was, self, it was kind of like self-published before a lot of people were self-publishing. And it was a pretty big deal. It did, I will say it did well. It still sells, but um, it did well. And I built a whole community on pelvic pain. And then in 2010, and, well, around 2009, my health just started to decline on its own, like with no real clue as to what was going on. And so that part of my life kind of got shut down. It was, it was headed in a very interesting, exciting upward trajectory. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, all these other symptoms, you know, kind of started popping up. And so by 2010, my pelvic pain community was kind of shut down and I was in pursuit of what else might be going on. But I did. Yeah, I had, I, I loved Pilates and Pilates is actually kind of how I got like after I found out I had Lyme and like, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that part, but Pilates is a, a large part of how I kind of rehabilitated myself during the time that I've been dealing with Lyme. So Jenny, it's, it's clear that you had this very active life and then you started to show the symptoms of your tick disease before diagnosis, and you weren't able to engage in some of these activities. Can you give us some detail on what activities you weren't able to participate in and how you began to lose the capacity to engage in those activities? Sure. It really started in 2009. So, you know, it had this continuation of symptoms from this ongoing bladder problem. And then all of a sudden I started developing a di like a kind of dizziness that didn't go away and it wasn't affected by positional changes. It just, it was always present and it felt like I was drunk really all the time, but without consuming any alcohol. And um, my, my primary doctor at the time, bless her heart, because she believed me, she could, she said to me, like, I can see you don't feel well, but I don't know you know, what's going on and what to do about it. 
so she put me on medical leave from my work and from any like extra exercise or activity for three months. And I, I went to, I don't know how many doctors, I mean, just like ENT, neurologist, dizziness specialist, I think another neurologist, an endocrinologist. I mean, I just like spent three months going from one person to the next and nobody really knew what happened. And then at the end of the three months of my medical leave, she was like, well, we still don't have any answers. You know, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know, just put me back to work. And I really wasn't okay. But at that time I was in my like a mid mid twenties and it was difficult for me to fathom that there was something that could be so life stealing. And so I thought, well, sure. At some point I'm going to wake up and be fine. So I went back to work and I wasn't fine. And I would go to these patients' homes, and they were like 80, 90, 100. My oldest patient was 103, and they were more active than I was. And I thought, it's pretty strange here. Like, you know, I'm, I think I'm a lot sicker than I even realized. And then by the beginning of 2010, I started not being able to sleep at all, zero hours. It's like it sputtered, my sleep kind of sputtered out over the course of, I don't know, like four months where I just had a little bit insomnia at first. And then like by the end of the four months, I was no longer sleeping at all. And after about the sixth day of that, I was hallucinating. And I said to my husband, like, you have to take me to the hospital. I don't think I can make it through another night of not sleeping and so he did. And I just, I just tried to explain in the most sleep deprived, but level headed way as possible. I remember saying, I don't know what's going on right now, but it's like a switch flipped in my brain and I cannot sleep. And I said, I know normally you'd be inclined to think maybe I'm exhibiting a psychiatric illness. I said, but I am not, this, there's no you know, intensity of emotion. There's no sporadic behavior. And I, you know, I, I worked in psyche, I worked in a psychiatric hospital. I did some, I, I did some, I have a background in psych. And so I like went down the list of everything. And I was like, there is none of that. I simply cannot get whatever's going on in my brain to sleep, you know, to, to put me to sleep. And so they uh, obliged me with some medication. I don't even really know what they gave me, but it did knock me out for like six hours. And it was enough to stay in my system. And so the following day I could sleep. I slept the following day too. And then I think that was Saturday night and then a Sunday. And then Monday I got back up and I went back to work. And it just did not take me long to figure out this is just, that was just a temporary thing sleep sleeping was just temporary in the hospital but all of the these kind of brain and neurological symptoms that I was feeling um, were not going to go away and so I went to a different doctor he had like I think a four-month waiting list at that time you know he said you have chronic fatigue syndrome you need to take more time off work and we need to get you feeling better so again I was off work I think I was only allowed to uh walk, which 
by that point, I actually really couldn't do much. So walking was even a challenge. But, you know, I went from, I went from weight training like five days a week and teaching Pilates and just, just not even giving any sort of physical activity, a second thought, just doing it, you know, and traveling and just, just living life, like with no thought to suddenly everything had to be so strategically measured out, you know, like it takes, if I do this activity, it's going to take me, you know, two days to recover. If I do, I don't know, like if I try to go somewhere, I'm going to need a week. If I try to make dinner and it was just like, you know, I'm going to need six hours. It was just like all these things just one by one began being stripped away. So it really started with my job. And then I would say followed by any kind of physical activity and losing my job was a big, was a big deal. Um, so that doctor had, you know, he put me on three months more of medical leave and it became clear that at the end of three months, I wasn't capable of going back. And so then I went on short-term disability and at the end of, I think it was nine months, then I actually, they terminated my position saying they couldn't hold it any longer. So that was like a big, that was a big turning point. Like I told, had mentioned before, there were certain aspects of the job I loved. There were some things I didn't love all of the time. But when someone takes, when something out of your control takes the choice away as to what you can and can't do, it's very heartbreaking. Um, I felt like an absolute failure. I thought, you know, here I've been working in this field for a decade and I've been able to, in some way, help the majority of people, but I can't figure out how to help myself. Like, how, how is this possible? How is it that I have something that's unhelpable? Like, it just, it boggled my mind. I, I couldn't understand it. That was, a very, that, was, that was one of many dark periods of letting go of this job that I had lost. You had mentioned that you went to your primary yeah. care physician and you were working with your primary care physician to try to figure out what this is. And then you followed up with another doctor. Was that another primary care physician or a specialist? No. So he, he's an internist and he had um, specialized in chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. And I just begun reading more about chronic fatigue. I mean, I, I knew about it as a therapist, but I, I began diving into certain books like uh, From Fatigue to Fantastic by Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum and a few other people who wrote around this concept of like MECSF. And I was like, I think that might be what I have. And so I picked this particular doctor because I thought that you know, like no one can find anything wrong. So I'm fitting that classic presentation there, but there are some neurological things going on, this sleep issue, this severe fatigue issue. And so I made an appointment with someone that had been trained in this like tidal bomb approach to treating chronic fatigue syndrome. And so he of course saw chronic fatigue uh, in me and fibromyalgia. And so he's the one that gave the diagnosis. He never could really take it beyond that, but he did take the sleep issues seriously. And he got me on like a sleep drug regimen that helped at least, <laughs> at least at that point it helped. 
So that was, you know, a step, it was a step in the right direction, but it was just a piece of the puzzle. It wasn't the whole picture. Jenny, I noticed that, you know, a lot of your symptoms from 2009 to 2010 are very similar to the ones I have had with my experience with Lyme disease, from your neurological symptoms to your fatigue and your insomnia. And even prior to that, a lot of our previous guests have noted that interstitial cystitis has been a symptom of their Lyme disease. So going back to your first experience when you had some health issues back in 2005 after your surgery, did anybody think potentially a pig disease then in 2005, or for that matter, even in 2009 or 2010, as your symptoms progressed, did any of your doctors think a tick disease then as well? Um, Back, so not back in 2005, um, you know, so similarly to Lyme, the the average IC patient takes, it takes about seven years for them to be diagnosed. And so just the, there's a little bit more awareness about IC now, but it's just back then there's, it just was not widely known. And, but I had some suspicions through my own research. I had discovered a doctor. I don't, I don't recall his name, but he was up there in years. He was like late eighties, early nineties. And he had been doing some research on interstitial cystitis where he would do a broth culture on, on the urine. So he would give, he would take, sterile urine samples from patients and he would allow time for bacterial growth to see what what would develop which is different than like you know running a urinalysis in the doctor's office and they just put a dipstick in and they're like oh yeah you have a urinary tract infection he believed that there might may have been some stealth pathogens at play and so just reading his research and knowing that mine developed after a surgery, I thought, you know, I really think this guy is on to something. And so I, but I couldn't find anyone who would treat that. And so what he, what this researcher was doing was getting patients, oddly enough, on doxycycline. And they were staying on doxycycline for several months to maybe a couple of years. And their symptoms were resolving with a high degree of improvement. And I thought, well, I can't find anyone to give me doxycycline, but I can start using herbal therapy to create my own kind of concoction <laughs> for the bladder. And this, is, this wasn't really a lot of stuff like people were doing. It, this was just like me hodgepodging different things together. And so I, I did, I kind of created my own little herbal protocol to cover a wide variety of what stealth pathogens this was really before any of the stuff online came out and I wasn't really aware of Lyme and after about six to nine months my bladder symptoms were about 75 percent better but other symptoms began and that's when all these neurological symptoms started so I you know I don't know with a hundred percent certainty that the two in me for me were 100% connected in terms of it being a a tick-borne illness in my bladder. Um, I do know that there were definitely some sort of stealth pathogens, but I'm not completely sure if it was, you know, tick-borne diseases because, you know, as I've treated Lyme, the bladder has stayed relatively the same throughout. Like I've gotten to that 75%, 80% mark, and it has remained there for a, a long time. So there's seasons where it's a little bit worse than others. But overall, that really took 
like once I had done my own herbal therapies for several months, that, that really took a backseat to everything else. And I'm really glad it did because I don't know if I could have handled getting up 10, 15 times a night to go to the bathroom and, you know, 20, 30 times a day and dealt with, with all of the symptoms of Lyme and this unrelenting fatigue at the exact same time. That may have just been too much. That may have tipped me over the edge. So Jenny, now at this point, you had to leave your job. You're having these debilitating neurological symptoms, among others. It's 2010. You're seeing the specialist for chronic fatigue syndrome. Can you walk us through what happens next up until your eventual diagnosis with Lyme disease? Yeah, I was essentially homebound and I really only left the house for doctor's appointments. I was on short-term disability, so they, it's like they made me do these other things to try to get well. So it was like I went to, I don't know, physical therapy or chiropractor or counseling. And no, none of it was really making any dent in the symptom. It was kind of just like going through the motions because we had to justify like why I was on this short-term disability. But other than those appointments, I really the fatigue level was so high that I just really couldn't do more than stay inside the, the, the house. So I kind of moved between the couch and the bed, you know, but it, it, in a weird way, I still held out hope that it would change, that things would change and that I would just wake up one day and it would go away. Well, about two years went by and it wasn't going away. In fact, it was getting worse. And so by 2012, I really was bedridden by the end of 2012. I couldn't, I couldn't sit up for more than five minutes. I couldn't get, you know, like I couldn't even really do like a normal shower. I couldn't make dinner. I mean, I've literally just laid in bed for a, almost two years. I found, and then I, I, in 2012, I found a doctor who, I, oddly enough, I had known about years ago from one of my patients who had had cancer and they were doing like some integrative cancer care with this particular doctor. And so I found, so I thought, you know, I mean, this patient spoke really highly of this other doctor, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to call the office. And I really didn't have any hope that anyone could help me, but I called this doctor's office and I asked a few questions and they said, would you like the doctor to call you back? And I was like, they do that? Like doctors, <laughs> doctors do that? I was like, okay. So he did, he called me back and he spent like a half hour on the phone with me. And um, I think I got an appointment two weeks later and I don't really recall specifically how long the appointment was, but it was like over two hours. And at the end of the appointment, and you know, he had like a full file of my medical history. He, he said, I think you have Lyme disease. And, and I said, no, yet that can't be the case. I said, I've been tested for that like two times and all the tests have been negative. And he was like, well, but the tests are really not very accurate. And he, that was like, kind of the first time that I had my eyes open to the idea that you could still have Lyme. And so I came home and I started just like Googling stories or YouTubing videos and, 
And there's a lot more content out now regarding Lyme disease, but in, even in 2012, even seven years ago, there was just a real absence of content. It was, you know, there were some Facebook groups um, and people were finding each other on Instagram, but just the volume of people's stories, it was, it, there was just significantly less. But I stumbled upon a few videos and these people had stories similar to me they were of the same age you know 20s 30s they had great careers they had um a lot of promising opportunities in their life and then all of a sudden like one by one things began being stripped away and I somehow I, I really identified with that and I thought, yeah, this is me. Like I'm I'm doing all the right things. I'm doing everything everyone asked me to do. And yet I'm still, you know, I'm still struggling, you know, and, and now I'm like confined to the bed. So something's being missed. And so when he said he, you know, he thought it was Lyme and I did research and I, I kind of came back and I said, I, I do, I think I agree with you. And when I lost my job, I lost my health insurance and the COBRA payments were ex extremely high. And so like I was the one, you know, in my marriage, I was the one that had like the stable job and the, uh, and uh, you know, the health insurance and benefits and such. Well, when I lost all that, that kind of like went away. And so, um, so I had like a four year period where I didn't have insurance at all. And so that was very, that was very challenging because I, I, you know, there were certainly times where I probably should have gone to the emergency room and, and I, and I opted not to, I mean, this is like some pretty, I made some pretty awful decisions in the moment. Like I had said to my husband, like, you know, if I become unresponsive, you know, call the ambulance, otherwise don't call before. I don't want you to be in debt, like ten, fifteen thousand dollars for emergency services. I mean, I, like, I don't, my mind was there, but I think I was just making some grim decisions at certain times. And, you know, I tried the, the treatments that the doctor had was prescribing, but I just simply was too weak at that point. I just was too sick to tolerate anything. What were the treatments that this doctor was prescribing you now that he believed you had Lyme disease that you weren't responding to? I mean, I think... I think it was just doxycycline, but I couldn't even handle that in like a third of a pill, a quarter of a pill. You know, I was trying that like every couple of days or twice a week. I couldn't even handle those. I mean, the reactions were just so severe. It's just like, you know, I don't know if it was a Herxheimer reaction at that point. I felt more like it was like just dumping something in a very toxic body that's how I, that's how i felt you mentioned that you know you you didn't want to go to the hospital unless you basically became unresponsive you were telling your husband to not put yourselves into debt have you ever thought back to figure out how much you spent on your illness from 2005 to the present date during the times you both had and did not have insurance that's like compartmentalized in a different part of my brain <laughs> And I don't really want to access that. I don't really want to know right now. Maybe when I'm out of the woods and I feel great, I'll look back and tally it up. But at, at the present moment, that is sort of like segmented away. 
because I, I know it's a lot and it continues to be a lot. I mean, it continues to be a lot of money. I mean, I, all I know is that as a rough ballpark, I could own a really nice home and I don't, I rent a vintage apartment <laughs> instead. So I could, I could have owned a really nice home with the money I've spent, but the exact dollar amount, I just choose not to uh, tally that up quite yet. Um, and just, you know, I'm just satisfied with, or I don't know, maybe I'm unsettled by knowing it's enough. It's a lot, you know. Now that you're seeing this doctor and you're taking this treatment, you're not responding well to it, and you're taking, you know, fractions of doxycycline that you're still not able to really tolerate. When you went back to this doctor, what were your next steps to heal based on the fact that you couldn't handle the medication that was needed? We just kind of ran out of options. I mean, you know, and this particular doctor's approach was not really the, the approach I, I think I needed. Um, it was a lot of, you know, I, I come with a lot of knowledge just simply because of my background. And so it was almost more like two clinicians discussing the direction that we should take my treatment in. And I, I think I really needed someone to go, look, these are where we need you to go and, and kind of how we need you to, to do it. And so at about a year mark, I made the decision to leave that doctor and I began working remotely with a clinician in Washington, D.C. Um, I couldn't travel to her and thankfully she did remote work and she had a a plan like she was like I understand your sensitivities you know stop looking at how anybody else is doing anything you know we're just going to take it slowly and so we started with herbs you know back at, at that point that was 2013 you know the real like famous combo was banderol and cemento you know and so we started with with banderol and then Cemento, and then eventually we added some medications to the mix, and and things were kind of headed in an upswing for for a while. I never really got past I would say like fifty percent like functionality. I think that was that's kind of where I plateaued, but it was obviously better than being bedridden for about two years. But it wasn't like quite enough, and but I stayed with that clinician for five years and you know I, I credit her for saving my life it's just that at some point we kind of run out of options and so like as in at the beginning of 2018 I kind of began getting an inkling that it was time to venture out and see someone in person again and so I ended up back in my little hometown of Winota, Minnesota, seeing a Lyme literate doctor there, but she also specializes in a lot of other types of illnesses too. But she'd been, you know, studying and chipping away at Lyme disease since it had really almost been a thing in Minnesota. So, you know, 30 plus years she'd been working on this disease. And so... That's who I'm with now. And really, I think the reason I kind of got this inkling in 2018 to go somewhere else is because in, two, like in the middle of 2017, like August, I would say, 
I started slipping backwards. So I'd only really ever gotten to 50%. And then I started for whatever reason, slipping backwards. And so I, and the nurse practitioner that I was working with remotely just couldn't get me back on track. And I thought, well, maybe it's time to, you know, visit someone in person. Now that you left your remote doctor that you were speaking with remotely and you went to this Lyme litter doctor and you kind of plateaued at 50%, you sort of backslided a little bit. What additional treatment options, aside from herbs and doxycycline, did you try to recover your health? So one thing you should know, I don't, I don't have like a wealth of money <laughs> to draw from. And so I'm very conscientious about the treatments that I pick. And, you know, like it's the decision's really up to me. There isn't anybody who's really like saying, yes, do this. No, do, don't do that. It's really up to me. So I'm, I'm very judicious with the, the way I spend money. And I, you know, I've seen a lot of treatments kind of come, become fashionable and a lot of treatments disappear. And so I always wait to see like what looks promising and like who has longevity with treatment. But I hopped on a bandwagon one time. (laughs) I regret that. And that's with the IV UV treatment. So it's UV therapy, but it's done, you know, in your, your vein. And I had a couple of friends that were doing it and they were singing its praises and they were doing well on it. And there was a place in Chicago that was offering it. And I thought, well, I, I understand some of the science behind it, especially if you have like a high viral load. And like I had lab work that was showing my viruses were high. And so I thought, well, you know, it's worth a shot. And so I, I did 26 treatments. And the first seven, I, I actually felt like I was like, it was helpful, like it was going pretty well. But by the end, I was like, this was no change or maybe even worse. So that's the one treatment I tried that I spent money on that kind of like outside of the box for me. Um, I do like, so like things like sauna and, you know, yoga, I don't really consider those like treatments in themselves. I mean, I, I think they're part of like a holistic part of the spectrum, but I think they're kind of like adjunct in my mind. And so like I have a sauna and I, you know, do yoga, Pilates, obviously I watch my diet. I do primarily like a keto diet, but that seems to work for me. It doesn't work for everybody, but this seems to be a pretty good diet for me. And I did, you know, IV like Myers cocktails, but I feel like those are very short, like temporary solutions. Like if you need to, I don't know, go somewhere for a few days, you have an event. I think it, I feel like it gives you a short term boost. I don't think it's, you know, in itself super curative. And I've done probably like a hundred of them. <laughs> so I feel like I'm like, oh, at least for me, I have a pretty good sample of, you know, like oh, that's temporary. I know you mentioned you had a clinical diagnosis from your doctor of Lyme disease, but I believe you had followed up with an actual positive test as well. Yeah. So when I didn't have health insurance in 2012, the, the doctor clinically diagnosed me because I, the tests were just, you know, out of my 
budget. I had no budget really <laughs> to be treating a chronic illness. I didn't have a job anymore, you know, and I didn't have insurance anymore. So um, it was based on, you know, clinical diagnosis. And then in 2013, when I began seeing this nurse practitioner, she did some other tests. She was able to get some different test kits at half price. And so like I had a positive BART test and I had some other indicators like inflammatory markers and, and such that it was like BART wasn't the only tick-borne disease, that Borrelia was likely part of it. And then I actually just took my first Igenix test at the end of 2018. <laughs> like I've been going through this for a long time, but I took my, the Igenix test in 2018 and it actually still was positive for Borrelia and Babesia. So I now have a bunch of different tests, but they're kind of spread out over the span of seven years. So Jenny, can you share with our listeners how you're doing today? Well, depends on the day. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very good at, <laughs> at holding it together for, you know, like a specific function. So, you know, you saw pictures of me out and about. I actually felt horrible <laughs> during that time. But, you know, over the years, your norm changes and you kind of adjust to this new way. And so, you know, it's like I need four hours of energy and then after I can crash, you know. And so I can do more, obviously, now than I could before. My cognitive function's pretty good. At least I think it's pretty good. I don't know. Someone else who's around me more often may think differently. <laughs> but in general, it seems to be that that hasn't really been too impacted or what impact the illness had had on it has improved substantially. But I'm still battling the fatigue pretty often to, to a high degree. But right now I'm doing the Dapsone protocol, which is very aggressive. I do not recommend it for everybody. It isn't for everybody. I know a lot of people who have started on it and have quickly had, had to stop because it's so aggressive. But from patients who have been through it and have done well on it, a lot of them say you just don't feel good on it. But when you're off of it is when you'll finally begin to notice the difference. And so I kind of like forge on and struggle through with this Dapsone protocol, um, which I'd started last year. You know, so I, I think right now I'm probably like 40% functioning, more or less. So Jenny, can you put a little more meat on that bone? What would that mean for you in a typical day? How many hours do you work and what kind of work would you be able to do? If I can lie in bed, which is where I do the vast majority of work, I can do stuff kind of like dispersed throughout the day. So I could do a few hours here, take a little break, a few hours more, take a little break, a few hours more, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm in a, like a resting position. And so you know, as long as my brain is functioning, then it's, it's okay. It's not, it's not a, it's not so much a physical exertion, you know, but if I have to, but I, I'm not really leaving the house. I don't leave the house much. So like on my Instagram, you saw like my biannual getting dressed up outing. You probably won't see that again for another year. It just doesn't, it just doesn't happen often. You know, I'm not like, I'm not getting dressed up and going places very, very much. I try to do some physical activity 
as tolerated. I don't make myself adhere to any specific schedule. Um, it's just like if I wake up and I feel like there's a little energy in my body, I'll do some yoga. I'm, I've been into push-ups lately, <laughs> trying to like get to 15. And then after I get to 15, I'm like, oh, I don't care. Who cares if I could do more than 15? <laughs> so, you know, I, I just I just do what I can when I can. If I can go for a walk, that's fine. Sometimes I can walk far. Sometimes I can't walk, you know, more than like five, 10 minutes. So it really just depends on the day. But I, I have a flex schedule with activity. I just do what I can when I can. And, you know, like some of these big projects, like different articles and stuff that I'm working on, I really just chip away at them. Like that, like as more projects started coming my way and more opportunities started coming my way, I didn't want to say no. I wanted to take, you know, whatever writing opportunities were given to me. And I had to figure out a way to kind of schedule things where I wasn't just collapsed at the end of the day. And so just little increments throughout the day. And I, like I always tell people, just chip away at it and you're surprised at, you know, how much you can actually get done. So I get stuff done just a little bit at a time. So, Jamie, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about doing this podcast is witnessing the transformation that so many Limeys have gone through and the, the meaning that they've gotten out of their new life. Can you share with our listeners how you've changed spiritually and emotionally as a consequence of your tick disease journey? Yeah. You know, I had a friend once that said that who, who didn't have Lyme but went through a different illness, and she came out the other side after several years, and she said that you know, she's grateful for the experience. Well, I'm not quite there yet. (laughs) I'm not grateful for it yet. Uh, It's hard and it's been going on for a long time. But I, I I feel like I've come to a, a place of acceptance, where two things can happen at the same time, you can work to improve your health, and at the same time, accept the position you're in. And because I was the type of person who was always on the go and doing things, you know, learning to not push myself and just accepting that this is where I am. And no matter how hard I try, I can't outrun this season of my life, however long it lasts. I can't outrun it. I am where I am. And yes, I have to deal with it. I think has been one of the hugest mindsets for me. That's been the biggest change because Prior to illness, my way of dealing with things was to always push harder, do more, you know, be better, blah, blah, blah. But like when you're ill and you have such a limited energy reserve, you can't do that. You can't have that mindset. Um, it took me very, it took me years to get to that, this point, but I'm okay now with where I'm at. So that's huge. I think on like, sort of a philosophical spiritual level I'm wrestling with the idea of not everybody gets better I know it doesn't sound like so so positive like but that's where my mindset is it's like you know I know hundreds thousands of Lyme patients some get better some don't not everybody does so what do you do with that and I'm trying to kind of like work that out in my mind and figure out Like if you have setbacks in your life or you have challenges and difficulties, how do you celebrate other people's recovery while you're still in the middle of your own battle? And 
your own battle may go on a lot longer, you know, but I haven't figured out those answers yet, but I can tell you if you're still sick or you're still struggling, it's not because you didn't try hard enough or you didn't will it enough or you didn't manifest something or you didn't pray hard enough. It's not because of those things. That's not why you're still sick. Like, I think there's always seasons of things. And so, like I said, the, the current season is accepting where I am while still trying to improve, improve my health, but then also reconciling this idea that some people get better and some people might not. I don't know where I fit into that category yet. You know, I hope I'm in the I'm going to get better category, but I'm not there yet. But during the season of your life, you've made another type of transformation, which was, has been your activist and your, and your professional transformation. So you can share with us how your tick disease experience has caused you to become an activist and what kinds of professional changes you've made. The professional part ha has been a, a major change. I mean, I, you know, I don't even somehow know how I got here. Like I, I still haven't got over the wonder of like being like, you're not an, an OT anymore or just an OT. I still keep my license and stuff up to date. I, I just, because I, I think it's important to kind of know what's going on in the, in the world. But, but in terms of like professional practice, I don't practice as an OT anymore. And over the years, you know, like I had, before I got sick, I had always thought of like going back to school and getting my MFA in creative writing or, you know, taking journalism classes. This was, this was many years ago, but then illness came and those things never happened. But I just, I started writing, you know, really when my brain kind of, my brain function, well, actually I started blogging many years ago, like 2005 or six, so a long time ago. So I'd always been like, I'd always done like blogging and then when my, like from 2010 to 2013, when I was really in this limbo period of what's going on, I stopped. I didn't feel like I had anything to say. And I had initially envisioned my old blog as this one that would show struggle and emerge victoriously. <laughs> well, I didn't emerge victoriously. And so for three years, I didn't really know what to say. And so I stopped writing. And then as soon as my brain kind of, you know, came back I started a blog and then I just started connecting with other people and writing articles for other people. And then some opportunities came along that were, you know, like offering payment. And I was like, Oh, I'm really not, I don't know if I'm any good at this. And so there was this time frame where I was realizing like that there was something in me that had a knack in the writing world but at the same time, there was a lot I didn't know. And so each time I wrote a piece, I would take on a new challenge. And so like, cause I, I couldn't go to school. Like I couldn't just, you know, take online classes. I couldn't just sign up for, you know, this MFA program that I wanted to sign up for. And so every piece had to matter. And I had to go like, okay, here's an article. I don't know how to interview people. I'm going to, interview people on this article and I'm going to learn how to, how to do that. And I'm going to practice it until I feel comfortable doing so. And then I would pick another challenge. You know, my grammar wasn't so great. I really need to work on grammar. And so I'm going to, you know, learn how to use a semicolon in these next two articles. 
And, you know, I'm going to learn how to do better research. Like I come from a, a healthcare background. Much of what I'm reading makes sense to me. I think I can learn how to read these different research studies, interpret it and tell it in a way that makes sense to other people. But I need to practice it. And so I just kept giving challenge after challenge after challenge. And over the course of, I guess, what, it's been like six years, I have written hundreds of articles. I've written many on tick-borne diseases. I write on things other than tick-borne diseases, but the tick-borne disease stuff is the stuff that people seem to care about the most. <laughs> nobody, nobody seems to care about the articles that are on like childhood eczema. <laughs> like, I don't think anyone's read that one. Yeah, I just, I've just built up a, a skill set that seems to have a, a place right now in media. And I think my background, you know, and my knowledge of healthcare and my knowledge of different diseases has really like enhanced my opportunity. And yeah, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I, there's a lot of, like, I didn't expect to be in this position. I, I never in my wildest dreams would have like come to the conclusion that, hey, I can be a writer out of illness, <laughs> but it happened. <laughs> Jenny, one of, one of the last things I want to talk to you about is the sort of third category of transformation that we've seen with our podcast guests, which is this necessary development of knowledge about ticks and tick diseases that comes along with being a victim of, of a tick bite. And we've actually even come up with a title for, for you folks who have this new knowledge, and we call you tick hackers. And tick hackers are people who know how to deal with <laughs> tick bite in the event that they do suffer one. And they know how to avoid being bitten by ticks, and they know how to determine where ticks are located. So the question that we ask all of our now tick hackers is, if you woke up tomorrow morning and you found a tick biting you on the leg, what would you do? Oh, that's not, <laughs> that wouldn't scare me anymore. I'm on, I'm already on medication. <laughs> so I'm already on what you would take. I would just remove it and uh, probably send it off for tick testing. <laughs> like, like right now, you know, there's at this particular point, if a tick wants to bite me, now's the good, a good time for it to bite me <laughs> where I'm already on intensive treatment. But I would just pluck it out with, pointed tweezers that I'm so accustomed to telling others to use and send it off. There wouldn't, you know, at this particular, I would, I probably would call my doctor and let her know, but at this particular moment, treatment wise, there wouldn't be anything else that I would need to do because I'm already doing it. But I don't know. I might just laugh at the absurdity of it. I don't have <laughs> the nerve of the tick to bite me at this stage of in my life, but but yeah, I think knowing how to remove it is probably one of the smartest tools people can have in their arsenal in terms of like tick prevention. A little bit scary, it's a little bit hard to figure out where to insert it. And the ticks don't like to come out super easily. You know, like I think people sometimes think they put the tweezers on and they just give a little pull and boop, it comes out. But it, sometimes they, they hang on and you have to actually use a little bit of, you know, like consistent pressure to pull it out. But yeah, right, right now, if they're going to bite me, <laughs> now would be the time to bite me. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Jennifer Botaccio.
To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Jennifer Botaccio and her tick disease journey, please visit her Instagram at Jenny underscore Botaccio or at Lyme Disease Challenge. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Bite blueprint that is inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your comments on our past podcasts. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of our reviews. Thank you for listening.